church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Will you pray with me? Oh God, may we enter your rest. This Advent, may we make space for you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, this is a special time for me. Uh, I made my husband yesterday wake up and help me decorate the whole house for hours and hours and hours because that's what my family did. Uh, when I was a child, our family took Christmas extremely seriously. Uh, first off, there was not to be one hint of Christmas music until the full 24 hours of Thanksgiving had fully passed. Uh, at, but then, the day after Thanksgiving, we popped out of bed at the crack of dawn and got to work. Uh, my mom had one of those Dickens villages, uh, you know, but it wasn't really a Dickens village. It was more, and, and it is to this day, a, a Dickens metropolis. Uh, it was so large that there were separate sections for the, the, the richer and the poorer inhabitants of her Dickens village, and uh, there were several postal codes in this village. Uh, we were decorating. Our decorating took the full three-day weekend, and when we were done, the house was a Christmas miracle, and we loved it. But what I loved most of all was the weekly Advent candle lighting. Each Sunday night, we would dim all the lights at the dinner table, and my parents would read about the angels and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph We'd sing a song, and we would light one, and then two, and then three, and then four candles. And so as the weeks progressed, the room would get brighter and brighter. It was special. And even before I understood the words we were saying, my little heart knew that we were celebrating God's love coming into the world. Advent, which begins today, is a season all about longing. Now, historically, these four weeks leading up to Christmas have been used for the church to remember the long ages of longing that led up to the birth of Christ, and for us to remember today our longing for the kingdom of God to come in fullness on the earth. Now, as a child, I was taught that the longing of Advent was for a Savior to come to save us from our sins. That's what the people were longing for, for a Savior to come to save us from our sins. But over time, I've come to understand that the longing of Advent, the groaning of the first century Jews for a Messiah, just like the groans of their ancestors in Egypt and like the groans of the oppressed and marginalized people through all ages, the groaning and the longing was for ways that make 
for peace, for ways that make for peace, for wisdom, wisdom for daily life, wisdom for relationships, wisdom in our governance, wisdom that makes human life flourish and that brings equity and peace among us. And the coming of Jesus is the coming of one who leads us into those good ways. In short, the longing of Advent is for thy kingdom come, the good ways of God to be known and lived among us here. During this season of Advent, our sermon series will be making space for Christ, which means making space for the wisdom of Christ, for the ways of Jesus that lead to human flourishing. And each week in our sermons and in our weekly devotional that we have, there's some in the back and at the table in the lobby, uh, we're looking at a practice, a practice that opens space in our lives, in the, the details and the, the humdrum of our lives for Christ. Uh, these, these devotionals have specific ideas on how to practice the things we talk about on the Sunday morning. So we hope you'll pick one of these up. They're also at our website to download. This week, we begin making space for Christ through the practice of rest. Now, it's not lost on me that speaking about making space for rest at the start of the holiday seasons might be a bit ironic, uh, because on top of the normal stressors of life, the holidays pack a bunch more onto our plate, and the stressors can be positive as well as negative right? You have so many good things that just make us overstimulated, like children full of too much candy. Uh, we become overstimulated, hurried. Our desire for special can make us have such a frenzy that everything be just right. And then there's family expectations and family dynamics and anxiety about money and loneliness and so on. If you're anything like me, you're looking at your December calendar and you're thinking, well, I'll get some rest in January, I guess. But beyond our seasonal harrying, our culture has a really complicated relationship to rest. I remember really distinctly, I once was driving and heard on the radio, this is you know, back in the 90s when we listened to the radio, uh, I remember hearing two ads back to back, and the first one was for a new some kind of new technology that would help you be connected and stay up to date on everything and always be in touch and always be on the go and do more and more and more. And then the next ad was for a luxury hotel that was telling you to unplug and rest from all the stress. And I thought that was amusing, right? Plug in, unplug, right back to back. There's a push-pull here. On the one hand, our culture loves a hustle. We love a pull-up by the bootstraps, hard-working accomplishment story. If someone asks you, how are you doing? The right answer is busy. I'm busy, which means I'm important. People need me. There's a feeling of status that attaches to hurry and even to stress and to control. We have such a hard time taking our hands off of things and letting them be, which is an essential part of rest. For me, getting married has been a revelation of the very many ways that I like to have things just my way. Uh, one example is driving. <laughs> As I've gotten older, I've become a very, very, very cautious driver like my father, who annoyed me so much when I was a child by going so slow. And uh, so as a driver, I've become more and more slow and cautious. But as a passenger, I've become more like my mother, flinching at 
everything. Break lights, you know. Uh, so, which to be clear, Gary is a very safe driver. I'm just obsessively in controlling. Um, I'm horrible at letting go of control. So, okay. On the one hand, we are a culture that just struggles to let go of control, and and that rushes. And we are also a culture that's starting to recognize that hurry and constant activity are deteriorating our emotional, mental, and physical health. Uh, You even see these days employers and health providers encouraging the use of meditation apps like Headspace and Calm to try and get people to just ratchet down their stress level a little bit. In the Christian tradition, rest is a central part of wisdom. Deep soul rest comes from a settled trust in the goodness of God. Call it being securely attached with God. Psalm 131 says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child with me. The weaned child is one that trusts that what they need is going to be provided. And so they can sit and rest with their parents in complete trust. And of course, one of the most profound images of rest that we possess and a great treasure is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This kind of deep trust marked the life of Jesus. Last week, I made the comment that Jesus was relaxed. He was at peace because he knew himself to be living in the kingdom of God. He knew he lived in the reign of God where God is present and competent to bring about goodness, even in fearful circumstances. And so we find him in Mark chapter 4, quietly sleeping in a boat while a storm rages all around him. A great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And waking up, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Be silent, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, I want to pause here before we go on to speak about being restful, because most likely you have heard a sermon like this before. You've heard this point, and what you were told, were told was, you should rest. Go home and try to rest. Slow down. Don't be so hurried. And probably you've heard that passage from Mark before, and what we hear is Jesus' question haunting us. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And so feeling kind of guilty about our lack of faith, we try. We try to feel calm. And have you ever tried to feel calm and collected when you're anxious? Just, just stop. Have you tried this? And what we end up is we feel more stressed because now on top of our stress, we're supposed to not be stressed. And we feel guilty about our hurry, which to be honest is really terrible. And I think we have to ask ourselves, do we really imagine that this is what Jesus wanted? That Jesus wanted to come to harried, stressed out, anxious people and to make them feel worse about themselves. To shame us into rest. 
Do we imagine that this works, that this is what God wants for us? What I think we need to do here is to sharply distinguish between settled beliefs and character, the kind of person we've become, the ways we now are, and practices which can form us into new ways of being. Or to put it another way, we need to distinguish between the end result of being restful and means that help us along the way toward being that way. This is the distinction between training and trying. If we're told, be restful, or even believe that God is good, trust God, well, we could try to do that just right now. But mostly what that would mean is we would pretend to believe some things that we don't yet believe, like God is good, the world is a safe place to be, I don't need to be in control, right? We could pretend to believe those things. And then we would also pretend not to believe some things that we do in our deepest hearts really believe. If I don't take care of myself, no one will. God isn't very trustworthy. The world is terribly unsafe, etc. And we could just cover over all of those things and just act a certain way. I think that's a situation for a lot of people. We're told there are ways we ought to be, for example, restful, trusting in God. And so we try hard to believe, to, sorry, to behave in those ways. And if we cannot, we are hard on ourselves and we just buckle down and try harder. But what if we heard Jesus' question in Mark 4 in a different tone of voice? Jesus, asleep on the stormy sea, clearly sees the world, sees God, and sees his own life really differently than the fearful disciples do. He's, he's seeing a different world. He seems to know and to believe something that they do not, which allows him to be at peace. And so, what if his question to them is not shaming, but actually inviting? A genuine invitation to ask themselves, why, why are we afraid? Why is it that I don't trust? What would I have to believe to be as calm as Jesus in this storm? And why do I now not believe that? You see, if we just try harder to believe in certain prescribed ways, then we end up bypassing what we actually believe, the way we actually think we are, the way we actually think the world is. And this is damaging in a few ways. First, of course, to ourselves, because we will be trying to behave in ways that are incongruous with our actual hearts, and that will disintegrate us. And so we will be stressed out and, and separated from ourselves. But more in a community, when a community tries to do this together, it creates spaces that are really unsafe for us to be who and where we really are. Because in order to take Jesus' invitation seriously, we have to be safe enough in a community to say, I would like to be the kind of person who believes what we read in Psalm 23. I would like to be that kind of person but I am now not that person. I would like to learn, but I'm not there. And we have to know that the community around us is not going to shame us or pray for us, but really hold space for us to explore and to discover what is it that I right now believe about myself, about the world, about God, that keeps me from rest? And what would I have to practice to experience the world differently? And that brings us to practices. 
practices, spiritual practices, are means of training rather than trying. Uh, They're indirect. A practice is anything that enables you to become the kind of person who can do what right now you cannot do, right? So imagine a piano. You practice scales so that you can play a piece. You don't just sit down at the piano and begin playing something. You have to practice and train your body to do things it cannot now do. Uh, the same thing for running a marathon or, or any other endeavor of worth, right? We have to do certain things to become the kind of people who can do what we can now not do, right? Following? Great. So, but that also requires vulnerability and honesty with where we are right now. Uh, one of the things that I, I really am working on is I get really frustrated with myself. I don't know about you, I was raised to be perfectionistic, which means that when I discovered things that I'm really bad at, uh, I just assume I can't do that because I'm not allowed to fail. It's not okay to fail. So math, goodbye. I quit that the second my high school allowed me to stop taking math classes. Uh, you know, uh, to- working with tools, not a good situation. I get really angry because I'm so bad, so bad with tools. Think of a dancer who wishes to grow. They will have to perform in, in front of others. And they're going to have to be seen, and someone is going to have to identify what they're doing incorrectly, the steps they are missing, the ways they are holding their body uh, incorrectly. And they're going to have to be told what's off so that they can adjust, so that they can practice different ways of holding themselves. They can practice different ways of engaging the steps to get them right. If they can't allow their missteps to be seen, they can't get help. Practices do two things for us. First, they give us the opportunity to have new experiences, Experiences which can really reshape our beliefs so that new behavior will flow naturally without trying. And second, practices can surface the things that we right now actually do believe uh, and that prevent us from behaving as we wish. So let's, let's look at rest. Let's take Jesus' question, why are you afraid? How would we become a people who are trusting and restful? Well, we might take up some practices that help us experience God in ways that allow us to trust and that help surface our resistance to trusting so that we can address it. For example, we might engage the practice of Sabbath. I'm constantly interested in the fact, uh, and there's no shame here, it's just really interesting to me that this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that we regularly think are just thoroughly optional. You know, just like, just not really that important. Like Sabbath, meh, you know, if I get around to it. Uh, it's, it's really the only one. In, in part, I think this is because Jesus spent a lot of his teaching undoing some really unhealthy ways that Sabbath was being enforced uh, to, to show that Sabbath and like Sabbath, all practices are meant for our good, right? We, they're not things we have to fulfill just because God said they're things that are really wise and, and life-giving. And so anytime you engage in a practice and it's just crushing, that's, you're probably, it's probably not the right way or it's sitting wrong, and you should probably take a step back and reevaluate and find a healthy way to engage that practice. But Jesus' point that Sabbath is for the good of humans uh, was not to say that rest was unimportant or optional, only that Sabbath isn't meant to crush us. Imagine, what would it take What would it take, realistically, for us to set aside a day of the week for delight, 
for play, for relational connection, and for rest. And realistically, maybe right now in your life, a day a week is unattainable. That's just not realistic. Uh, what about an afternoon or an evening or a morning each week? I think even contemplating this practice will bring up resistances in us, right? And we'll say, well, how will I ever get it all done? How will I, my life will not work like that. Okay, great, good, good, it's working. The practice has started because whatever's coming up as a resistance, those become the places that we start asking ourselves, is that true? And then setting up experiments. What if I, what if I tried, you know, being off my phone for a day or, or whatever the, the thing is? Those resistances are exactly the place where Jesus invitingly asks us, why are you afraid? Let's look at that together. And if we tried it, the practice might start to form in us the awareness that if we take our hands off the world for a few hours or even for a day, the world gets on without us okay. Or another practice, which I find really helpful, uh, slowing down. And this is our recommended practice this week, slowing down. Uh, I tend to live my life at top speed. Uh, I wake up in the morning, I have my coffee, I do some prayer, I sit with my puppy, and then I get in the shower, and the first, you know, you have shower thoughts, the things that, like, you know, you're, you're in the shower and you're just, your mind's one. The first thing every day that my, my think when I get in the shower is, what do I have to do tomorrow? Because <laughs> I'm, like, already 24 hours ahead planning. That's, that's just, I, I have to call myself back to today. So I have, I have room to slow down. Slowing down can look a lot of ways. Uh, for me, sometimes it looks like picking the longest line in the grocery store and then not pulling out my phone to distract myself. Or if I'm driving, and this one really kills me, um, although less and less, as I said earlier, I'm going, now I'm this person. Uh, when I'm behind someone going slow, uh, not passing them, just staying behind them if it's a safe speed to do so. Now what happens? Well, resistance will come up, absolutely. You know, I'll get in that line, I'll think, oh God, I have so much to do today. I can't be in this line waiting forever. This checker is so slow. And here I can begin to ask myself, why? Why do I believe, what, what do I believe that makes me think I have to go faster? What do I think is so important that I have to rush? What's being challenged for me here? And the flip side, so one, it'll bring things up. Two, when I let myself slow down and not hurry, I tend to notice beauty. I tend to have space for interruptions. I tend to be kinder to the people around me. I tend to settle more easily into awareness of the generosity of God. Hurry makes me focus on what is missing and on scarcity, but slowing down tends to help me turn toward abundance and what is present. To be a person at rest, to say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, is a deep wisdom. It enables us to be more responsive to what happens in our lives. It enables us to be more generous with our attention, to be less reactive and more creative. This is good and wise. But we don't just try to trust or try harder to rest. Rather, we engage ways, practices that slowly enable us to become restful kinds of persons. And this leads me to my final point about rest. Ironically, we can be in such a hurry to become restful. We can become awfully anxious about our inability to trust. 
And I think what we maybe most need to hear about rest is that we can rest into who we are now. We can take our hands off ourselves. We are not our own project. Now, that might sound counterintuitive because didn't I just spend 20 minutes talking about practices, right? Well, yes, but here's the thing. Really at the root, what the practices all are doing is opening us up to relationship with God. And in that relationship, Jesus comes and asks us some really good questions. Questions like, why are you afraid? What would you, what would you need to know from me in order to relax? What would help you grow in trust? And the thing is that those questions aren't posed just so that you give the right answer. Any one of those questions could, could be something you hold for years, unraveling them slowly with the help of friends, prayer, therapy, yoga, journaling, serendipity. These tender questions are not something God is in a hurry to rush us through because as we tease them out, you start to get into the really intimate depths of your fears and your longings and your desires and your hopes, and that's the place where God loves to dwell. We come to know exactly what we believe about ourselves and the world about God, and it's, it's tender ground. So to be clear, we're invited on a journey, a journey toward increasing peace, increasing rest, increasing trust, and we don't have to hurry ourselves along that journey. Will you pray with me? God, this Advent, may we lean into rest. And may we find you meeting us there. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Thank you.